Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In March of 1979, there was a minor plumbing problem near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. A valve was supposed to shut, but it didn't. The plumbing problem, as you might guess, turned out to have major consequences, which is why we remember it today. The open valve was in a huge building on the Susquehanna River, a nuclear power plant called Three Mile Island, and a partial meltdown, including release of radioactive gas, was underway. The White House called an emergency meeting. As the new book Meltdown explains, President Jimmy Carter's science aide suggested to the head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that maybe terminal cancer patients could be sent in to release the valve. The head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission looked at the White House aide, and according to the book, he could tell he wasn't joking. Meltdowns, though, don't just happen in nuclear reactors. They happen in financial markets, in airplanes, in companies. We live in a world of complicated systems where most of us understand a sliver of what's going on on the back end. And all those moving parts mean that something as simple as a valve not closing can lead to a nuclear meltdown, which has made big catastrophes harder to prevent. Chris Clearfield is a co-author of Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. He's also the founder of System Logic and a former derivatives trader. Chris, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So what was the first thing that got you interested in this idea of systems just completely breaking apart and, and failing? That's a great question. I think it really was um, just looking at the world and seeing what was going on and seeing all of these big failures that we had out there and kind of looking into them a little bit and realizing that there was a lot more in common with them than than seemed on the surface. Mm. You know, I was a trader during the financial crisis. And so I kind of had a front row seat to organizations that handled that relatively well and organizations that really fell apart um, during that crisis. And, you know, for for me, it was really interesting to sort of try and understand or, or try and think about why did some organizations handle this well and and others really struggle mm-hmm. with it? And then just a couple years later, the, the Deepwater Horizon uh, oil spill yep. happened. And for me, that was kind of looking into that accident, realizing it, it actually had a lot in common with the financial crisis. And and that was pretty unexpected. And so that's kind of part of what piqued my interest in the topic. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to uh, Three Mile Island for a minute. How could something like a valve, so something so seemingly inconsequential, it was a small bit of plumbing, it was related to some plumbing maintenance that had been done, how could something like that partially melt down a nuclear reactor, which when you think about safety systems, boy, the number one goal of a nuclear power plant right. is <laughs> not, to melt, not to melt down, right? So how did that happen? It's really interesting. And our insight in that accident really comes from a, a researcher called Charles Perot, um, who goes by Chick, Chick Perot. And Chick Perot was a sociologist who looked at the Three Mile Island accident after it happened. And, you know, the official conclusion of the accident investigation was that the it was operator error, that the operators had made a mistake, that they hadn't responded to the, the accident correctly. And it was their fault that the meltdown happened. But what Perot saw when he looked at it was he really saw this accident where you couldn't even understand the logic of it until you had a bunch of engineers doing nine months worth of investigation. 
Um, and so what he said was basically, you know, it's a cheap shot to blame these operators. There's no way they could have responded correctly because there's no way they could have understood what was going on. You know, not only right. did you have that valve that was stuck open in the wrong position, um, you had other valves that were closed that were supposed to be open. No one really knows mm. why to this day. Even the uh, initial trigger of the accident, which was some pumps shutting off, really still nobody really understands why that happened. And so what Perot looked at when he looked at this accident was he saw, you know, this major nuclear meltdown that wasn't caused by a big external shock. Uh, It wasn't caused by a terrorist attack or an earthquake, but it was caused by all of these small, small failures that came together. And for him, that was really uh, terrifying in a way because it, it meant that. You know, this incredibly complex system, it really was beyond our understanding and and in many ways beyond our control. Um, I want to take a bit of an excursion here to a meltdown that fortunately did not have health consequences or, you know, ruin anybody's lives or anything. It was at the 2017 Oscars and Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, they come out to present the award for Best Picture. And the Academy Award... For best picture. You're impossible. Come on. La La Land. Uh, Chris Clearfield, that was obviously a mistake. Uh, There was a bit of a meltdown in a system. And the system may not be, again, like the most important system in the world, but their highest priority, you would think, would be to give the awards to the right people. It's an award show. Right. Um, How did that happen? Like all of these meltdowns, there were a bunch of factors that led to it. There's one that really stands out, though, which is, I mean, you you can listen to Warren Beatty's voice, right? And you just, you hear his hesitation, and you right. hear you hear him really struggling. And I think, you know, Faye Dunaway kind of thinks he's hamming it up, but he's, he's not. He's looking at this card. He's realized it's the wrong thing. But by the time right. he's realized it, it's too late, right? He's already on stage. He doesn't really know what to right. do. And, right. and so you look at the design of the envelopes that they had in 2017, and they were these, you know, envelopes with these like sleek gold lettering, very beautiful, very subtle, kind of beautiful, elegant design. And what happened is backstage, Warren Beatty was handed the wrong envelope, but he didn't realize it until he had it open and he was actually looking at the card. And so one of the problems here is that there were these things that went wrong, but then it was very hard to catch the error because there wasn't a lot of transparency right. in the system. Right, right, right. And if you compare that to the envelopes this year, um, how to put it delicately, they're really ugly. Um, <laughs> right? I mean, they... Well, I mean, the whole, the viewing audience, which is really what the Oscars is for, yeah. I, don't, I doubt appreciates the sleek and subtle lettering. Exactly. Uh, you know, of last year, whereas, as as you you know, point out subtle lettering can lead to problems. Yeah, exactly. So this year it says best picture. You know, the category name is in huge letters. It's actually on the envelope twice. Uh, So it's pretty hard to imagine a mix up not getting caught because it's so clear. And this is really this bigger lesson, which is, you know, the antidote to complexity. It's not simplicity. Mm. It's transparency. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Chris Clearfield, co-author of the book Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. So you say that one way of averting disasters often is to listen to people who speak up, who dissent. Um, It could be an outsider who says, like, I don't quite understand why you're doing things this way. Um, It could be a whistleblower, because sometimes you've got people who sort of 
see the seeds of a problem before the problem blows up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the most powerful solutions uh, in the book. And I think it's one of the things, you know, if you think about what what the kind of thesis is, right, it's that these small errors snowball into these big problems. And so, well, what we need to do then is we need to start to get a handle on these small errors before that happens. And, you know, there's loads of examples. I mean, aviation as an industry has done a really amazing job of kind of getting a handle on this and encouraging flight crews to to report these small problems before, you know, these near misses before they become big ones. But, you know, there's also there's a really powerful story in the book about um, a nurse who is working in a hospital and she has two patients with similar last names in the same room. And they're actually taking medications that have similar sounding names, too. And she almost gives the wrong medication to the wrong patient and she catches herself And what she does is she doesn't just catch the problem for herself. She tells her fellow nurses about it. And then they actually separate the patients into two separate rooms. So, you know, the nurse on the next shift is not likely to make that same problem. Mm -hmm. And then the hospital goes ahead and and takes it a step further and actually implements a policy where patients with similar last names aren't going to be put in the same rooms anymore. And so I think what you see from this story is you see the power of – um, it's almost, the, you know, it's the power of small data, right? It's the power of right. one person's experience with this near disaster, and then the organization learns from it. Mm-hmm. And what we need to be doing is training and teaching those who are in power to listen and to really right. give them the tools to be able to do that, too, because it's not easy. Right. Um, another point that you make about how to avoid disaster, and this kind of speaks to that that notion of listening, is that the more diverse your team is— the better chance you say they will actually have at like spotting potential problems at at kind of um, avoiding the landmines down the road. Yeah, this was one of the most surprising pieces of research that we came across. Diversity actually helps teams avoid meltdowns. And and that was kind of surprising. And when we talk about diversity, we're, we're thinking both about you know, surface level diversity, race and and gender, Mm -hmm. things like that. But we're also thinking about diversity in professional backgrounds, diversity in expertise. Mm -hmm. And so what the research shows across a bunch of different domains is that diversity works not because it brings together a bunch of different perspectives in this sort of happy kumbaya moment, but it works because it makes things harder. So it, it creates kind of a speed bump in a diverse group we're less willing to give other people the benefit of the doubt. And that applies whether we're, you know, making decisions in a financial context, um, whether we're making Mm. decisions about um, who to hire, that kind of thing. And it also applies when we're thinking about how diverse teams make decisions about big, complex, thorny business problems. So Mm -hmm. um, one of the most interesting pieces of research in the book is this research that shows that community banks that had more bankers on their board were more likely to fail during the financial crisis. And that's kind of surprising, right? I mean, you would think that bankers would be pretty good at managing banks. Right, right, right. It it is kind of, but I also can see that somebody from outside a system would be like, this does not make any sense to me. Why do you do things this way? Exactly. And you might have to actually think about why you do things this way. That's exactly it. And really what it did was it just enabled that questioning to happen. So a board that had not just bankers, but also doctors and lawyers and nonprofit mm-hmm. folks and people of different professional backgrounds, they would just be willing to say, hey, this doesn't make sense to me and, and just kind mm-hmm. of challenge not even necessarily challenge the decisions, but just challenge the the cadence of decision making, right? So they wouldn't just kind of go along to get along. 
They were really willing to say, I don't understand this. Can you explain this more? And defer making a decision until there was more to understand. If you were giving advice to to companies, to organizations, what would you say that the two or three things should be that somebody should really focus on if they want to prevent a meltdown? I'll give two of, I think, my favorites. And actually, both of them apply to uh, both companies as well as people, as well as people just making big decisions about their lives. Right. One thing you can do is just to incorporate outsiders. You know, just bring in somebody who's not connected with the decision but has enough of an idea about um, the context that the decision is being made but, you know, isn't bound up in any of the particular outcomes and get them to weigh in on it. And that's something that companies can do, you know, we can all do. That's a really a really powerful tool because it just shakes up our thinking a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um You know, another one is, uh, and we talked a little bit about this, but just realize that in complex systems, we're not going to have all the answers. And so what we need to do is we need to try things. We need to try something, see how it works, and then reflect on that and kind of suggest something new to try. And this is something we Mm -hmm. see um, folks like film crews and and emergency room teams doing. Um, But it's also... You know, as I was writing the book and was kind of enmeshed in this research, um, looking at in particular how organizations kind of manage these crisis situations that they don't always understand, I started to realize that my morning routine with with our five year old, getting him ready for preschool, that actually looked a lot like a crisis, um, <laughs> right? And there were meltdowns, right? Exactly, exactly. And so I've seen it myself. <laughs> many of us have. Um, And so what we started to do is we started to have this kind of short, you know, five minute meeting every week, just reflecting on asking three questions. What went well? What didn't go well? And what do we want to try next week? And, you know, it's really simple. But what it means is that we're not solving the same problems over and over again in the moment. But instead, we're figuring out, okay, you know, we we can't spend time in the morning finding jackets and shoes and gloves. So we're going to find, get a bin and put them downstairs in the, you know, in the garage before we go out. Um, and we're going to make sure that the lunchbox is always put in the same place and stuff like that. And so, you know, the truth is we never know what solutions are going to work, but we come up with stuff to try and then we see if that works or doesn't and, and move, move on from there. And I think that kind of experimentation is something that uh, is hard for places to do, but really is, um, essential to getting a better handle on how to avoid the kind of meltdowns that we see more and more often. Mm -hmm. Chris Clearfield is a co-author of Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. Chris, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. On our Facebook page, we've got an article for you by Chris Clearfield about preparing for a crisis that you could never predict. That's at facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. And on our website, if you want an innovation hub mug or a t-shirt or a bunch of other things, we've now got them for you, which is pretty exciting for those of us who work on the show. So head to innovationhub.org. And if you look on the right side of the webpage, you will see a link where you can check out our new swag. 